Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Dr. Scott Weingart is with me today. And for those of you who have not heard of Dr. Weingart and the work that he's doing on his blog, MCRIT, his podcast of the same name, he is turning the way we learn and talk about medical education completely on its head. And when I say that, I do not think that I'm overstating the point. Scott's joined me today. We're going to dive into this a little bit, the work that he's doing, his approach to it. And uh, I, this is going to be interesting because things are changing really quickly in the way that all professions interact, educate, learn, and engage. And Scott is right out there on the sharp edge. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. I'm so happy to talk with you. So you finish your training. You are a board-certified emergency physician as well as an intensive care physician, correct? That is correct. So you finish your training, you go out into the world, we all go out in the world, and the first thing we have to do is just learn how to be an attending. We just have to learn how to be a good doctor. Um, you, you, you're, you're sort of kicked out of the nest, and now you have to go and do your thing. So you go and do that. Along the way, you had to have been seeing things where you said, I want to change how I talk to people. I want to change how I engage with residents, staff, EMTs, intensive care docs, surgeons, because we're not doing something right. As you were on that journey, what were you noticing at first that you felt like maybe we weren't doing the best that we could have been doing? Yeah, I wouldn't even go so far as to say we weren't doing the best we could be doing, but there was a lot of wasted effort. If you're in the job of an academic physician of any ilk, uh, part of your duties, in addition to taking care of patients, is to teach and you, if you care, and I really did, I wanted my learners to uh, maximize their time with me, you put an enormous amount of effort and a personal time into just preparing. And then in the traditional way, the venues you could use, uh, that, that, a lot of that effort just felt wasted. You put an enormous amount of time preparing for a one-hour lecture, and you might not give it again for two years. That disconnect between uh, effort to benefit was one of the spurs to think there may be a better way for me. And as you've gone out, and obviously you, you must interact with people of all different professions, that effort to benefit ratio, that's not just medicine. That's anyone that's educating somebody, right? I mean, this has got to be a pitfall of any sort of teaching slash learning dynamic. Absolutely. And we've seen in contemporary times that, that there are so many venues where something that traditionally be a one-on-one interaction when put forth and made publicly available has received huge amounts of uptake, uh, far in excess of anything anyone could ever predict. I mean, the Khan Academy is a perfect example. Uh-huh. Um, that would usually something one tutor, one 2D, uh, and you, you're getting paid an hourly rate. And now you just put it on the internet for anyone and it's changed the lives of people without access to those kind of teachers. So, you continue on this journey. Obviously, podcasts become popular, blogs become popular. These things are all happening in parallel along with your rise. When you decided to step over, you know, the third rail and and be a very, very visible educator that has an international impact just by being online, when you started that, were you what was your sense of the demand? What was your sense of what was about to happen? 
I had zero. And, <laughs> right. And I, I think that's that shows to some extent. There is just emerging this phenomenon of people who are being very deliberate about this as a educational activity. They think this is low-hanging fruit and they could advance their career in a uh, more rapid fashion by using these new technologies. And uh, I think that shows. I think those people uh, have a tinge about them of, uh, gosh, I don't even know the words, but but your listeners know. And I think if I had any projection that this would be popular and I'm doing it because I wanted fame for whatever level of fame you could ever get from a medical education uh, outlet, but uh, it, it, it would show. And I think the fact that I was totally clueless that anyone would even listen to this uh, was part of the success. But I, what you were saying, though, about, you know, we're, we're, we're clueless and naive when we start this. I mean, I started a podcast, same kind of thing. I didn't expect to have any sort of response. I think that there is a, we're tapping into, um, a, a, a mine that I don't think anyone anticipated was out there. There is a thirst for knowledge across all scopes and spheres that is just, it's stunning. Ted talks, uh, things you should know, how stuff works, MCRIT. I mean, the demand for this stuff, it's just, it's staggering. And, I, I would have never expected it. Uh, I mean, and obviously, I wonder if when you launched your podcast and your blog, if you expected that you're now going to be an internationally sought after speaker. I didn't. And I have some thoughts on why uh, this phenomenon uh, manifests the way it does. And uh, at least in medical education, I can't speak to these other domains. Uh, the concept of just tacit knowledge expression, there was no there was no outlet for that. You know, you could write a textbook, you could write articles, and that's a transmission of a very rigid, like almost factual level of knowledge. But there's not too many ways you could get across to more than one learner at a time. Uh, just the mistakes you've made, the, the little things you've picked up, the uh, things that come with expertise that are very difficult to get into an academic journal. And I think there's a thirst for that kind of knowledge, in medicine at least, that was being totally unslacked. I think that you've nailed it. I would describe it as, as it's a leveling of the playing field, right? Those stacked textbooks, the Netter's Anatomy and the Hamilton's Book of Medicine, those were a barrier. That was a way that separated you and I when we were learning from people who, hey, you know, can you give me a thought about how I should manage this problem in real time at the bedside? You know, it was, it was this didactic thing with the professor and the, you know, the, the white castle on the hill. What you've done with MCRIT and with the talks that you give, it, remember the cartoon, right? The Roadrunner where Wiley Coyote would like blast through the wall and there's the <laughs> like perfect, <laughs> the perfect outline of him in the wall. That's what this is doing. It's knocking holes in that wall. And when I'm, I think when people see they can access the knowledge they want in a totally different, more accessible way where they don't feel like you're unapproachable, they don't feel stupid for asking. It's just, hey, can we exchange some ideas? I, I think it's just opened up a volcano. Without a doubt, it, it, it is something that people have wanted. Uh, there's some dangers as well. I, I know there are learners out there who – think this is a replacement for that textbook knowledge mm -hmm. for just seeing the patients and getting your own experience. And it is in no way that it, it is an augmentation of what they should have been doing 
anyway what they would have been doing without these podcasts. And this this basically maximizes that effect, but it's in no way a substitute. And that is one of the dangers of just listening to an expert talk and then for whatever level of expert I am and then deciding, oh, well, I could do that too on my next uh, shift in the emergency department. That That's incredibly dangerous. That's an interesting point because you're right. There is this sort of um, inherent credibility that you get when you when you start one of these things. And you're right. People do need to have their own sort of sense of context when they approach it. But that gets to something that I think is really interesting. And you do it really, really well. Physicians are a group where a lot of the time they do think they know a lot, if not everything. And capturing their attention, holding their attention, and gaining their trust is really difficult. We've both been in all of the lecture halls where the person starts to talk and you can just literally hear the eyeballs rolling around, the eyelids closing, the, you know, the phones coming out, the newspapers rustling. You must have had to spend a little bit of time thinking about this is a tough audience and I need to press the right buttons, pull the right levers so that when I get up in front of a room and they've never heard of me, that I'm going to grab them. And they are going to go on a 30, 40, 60 minute journey with me. It, it, it is not in any way spontaneous. And I, I don't think there are many folks out there that could be put in that role and perform just off the cuff. But uh, it also, any lecture I give, there's no pre-planned script. There's no uh, sculpting out of exactly the words I'm going to say. So then how do you, how do you reconcile those two? Well, and I have thought about this a bunch. Uh, the, the first key is you need to be a true expert. You need to have done more research, more reading. You would need to have seen anything out there and not just the things that support your conclusion, which people naturally gravitate to, but the things that are against your conclusion. And then you got to go to the next step and think through why you still believe the things you do, knowing there is contradictory evidence and information out there. Um, and but that that's just the baseline. Uh, that that's the sine qua non, but is it's not in and of itself sufficient. But a lot of people don't even get to that level. So they're talking to people that are smarter than them on the subject they're talking about, and those people will just be decimated mm-hmm. in in any kind of intellectual conversation. So you need to be a true expert. And the level of work that that takes is, is far outside what most people want to commit to it. And um, they will, and I see these lectures all the time at national conferences, they will do cursory reading at a review article level on the topic they're talking about. And then they will regurgitate it. And essentially all they've done is they've just taken knowledge from one venue and and transmitted it in a potentially even less well-wrought form to an audience, and that's that's just deaf. Um, but you have to go a step further, and you have to develop the same skills as uh, you know actors, as uh, debaters, as uh, all of the venues where you're trying to convince people of an argument. Because if in a lecture your only goal is to transmit information, you've you've picked the wrong format. There's, that's not what it's for. The, the purpose of a lecture is either to inspire or to convince people of some argument that they're not already convinced of. I want to pick up on the first thing that you were talking about a little bit with respect to being the most prepared 
being ready to pivot, being ready to handle things that come at you. My favorite book that I ever read, and I read it once a year, is The Chosen. And in The Chosen, there's a chapter where one of the main characters talks about how he is studying the Jewish Talmud. And that's the approach that they take. And I remember reading that book when I was a kid, and it's this long chapter about exploring this road and then exploring that road. And then what would be the counterpoint to this? And I loved it. It was this granular, gritty way to just get down and dirty with the material so you can really master it. And I think that you're brilliant to take that approach because how can you question it? You may not have everything, you may not know everything perfectly and it may even be unknowable. And like in that chapter, it ends up that this segment that this kid is studying, studying, studying is actually this really confusing, difficult, almost unknowable thing. But when he gets up in front of the classroom, when you get up in front of a lecture hall, there is a there is a weightiness that really resonates. Uh, you know, and it, it you have to take it a step beyond that in medicine uh, because you could gain theoretical knowledge. Uh, one of my residents, if they were truly inspired to learn something about a particular topic, could put in the same amount of time uh, that someone with expertise has put in and gain a level of book knowledge that is uh, uh, equal or or surpasses. But you have to take it a step further in medicine and have the practical experience yeah. with real-life scenarios to actually temper that knowledge to real world. And that is another step that speakers who don't have credibility, they miss out on. And if you lack that, then you're going to get shot down by anyone who has real-world experience. So I make it a absolute point in my entire academic career that if I've just read about something but have never actually treated real patients and a sufficient number of real patients that I've not just seen the successes, but I've seen the horrible things that could go awry. If I haven't done that, I just don't talk about it. And and I think that's a really good sort of limiter to have so that you never overstep your, you don't, you don't come out of your lane. You know, you don't want to ever be the, the guy on the luge sled who whips up out of the thing and goes flying and they're out of control and they don't know what they're doing and they get hurt. It's a similar kind of thing for, for when you're up in front of a group. The other piece to it, too, is that when you're in front of that group, and I think that this doesn't apply to medicine, I think that oftentimes, at least before this sort of leveling, people would see an audience, uh, see a speaker and they would either be intimidated or they would be dismissive at the jump. So the person was on the back foot right from the get-go. Now it's this, it's much more of a collegial communal thing. Hey, you're one of us. You do what we do. You understand the plight. You understand three o'clock in the morning tired. You understand a bad outcome. It levels that field and it allows people to sort of meet in the middle and get into what's important. One of the best pieces of advice I got on presenting to groups is that the entire focus of everything you say, even to the level of noun verb connection should be making the audience, the hero, hmm. and never self-aggrandizing yourself as the speaker. And if you think, just think that through for a little bit, it changes the entire language with which you speak. So instead of saying, uh, you know, with this level of knowledge, I could save a lot of patients. If you say with this level of knowledge, you could save a lot of patients. All of a sudden, uh, you, you've made the protagonist of the story them. And they're, they're on board for that. I think that that single pronoun shift is probably, I mean, I, I think if we were to really get down and think about what has made you be this accessible, very popular speaker, I think that's probably it. 
because I think people are used to it being, wow, thank you for the, thank you for deigning to share your information with us, oh mighty professor, as opposed to, I can do this too. Oh, okay, great. I feel empowered. I'm going to go, I'm going to go get better at it. Absolutely. The other piece about presenting, and again, this is any specialty. This is medicine. This is law. This is whatever. We got to talk about slides. We got to talk about PowerPoint. Um, and I don't want to, this isn't a how to on how to give a talk, but you and I have both seen the runaway freight train and quite honestly, how it damages the credibility of any sort of speaker, you know, your work, your website clean, what you need is there. Otherwise nothing extraneous. Where do you stand on the PowerPoint slide? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with PowerPoint. In fact, PowerPoint was a huge innovation yeah. in presentation. Uh, okay. the, the problem is the people's perception of what that device is supposed to be for. And there was a built-in barrier when we had the old slide machines. And I, I say it as if I was intimately involved in them, but I came up in the era just as those were dying out. Oh, yeah. um, but, but you had to spend money for each of those slides. So it really made people... Uh, think through whether this needed a slide or not. And most of their um, slides would be devoted to things that should be represented at, uh, as either pictures or charts that are difficult to convey verbally. And what you would have in those uh, old-timey talks is you'd have a list of speaking notes, and those would remind you of the key points that you should be using your voice and body to discuss and not slides. What has happened with the ease of being able to create as many slides as you want with relative ease is that people have taken their speaking notes and just made them into slides. And that is a catastrophe for a lecture. If, if all of the bad lectures we saw with horrible slides, all they would do is make those same PowerPoint decks and print them out for themselves and never show them to the audience, that alone would markedly improve the quality of talks. Now, there's also the problem that you should have done your talk enough times before actually presenting it to an audience that you shouldn't have to look down at those speaker notes for anything except an occasional reminder of where you are in the talk. Mm -hmm. But if we just did those two things, I'd say 90% improvement would be seen immediately. I agree with that. I want to add a third one. If you ever have to preface a slide with the statement, I know this is a busy slide, mm -hmm. but... Honestly, I want the old time, you know, hook that comes from stage right to grab you and just pull you away because we're done. Yeah, those people don't care about their audience. No. Uh, and, and it means that they have not looked at that deck uh, once since they created it. Right. And that creation was a one time run through. Here's the things I need to discuss. Uh, the, uh, that lack of caring for an audience is really unacceptable. And, and let, it be, let it be known from here on out. Audiences know this stuff. They're very sophisticated. I know this is a busy slide, but it can't happen anymore. It's yeah. a, it's a never event for a speaker because you're right. It, it, it shows a level of disrespect and it also just shows no interest in engagement. It says, I, I I'm going to force feed this. You can't read it. You can't see it. It's going to make you dizzy, but for you still need to know it. Well, give me a break. Um, yeah, that, that is definitely a, a, a major issue. Let's talk about when you have an audience and you've got them where you've got them kind of on the, on the roller coaster with you, whether it's on a podcast that you feel like is going really well, or you're giving a talk and you look around the room and it's all eyes up, all eyes on you. Do you try to get a sense of maximizing the rhythm of the talk of, 
having a having a crescendo, having a denouement, having it be like a story so that they really get a sense that they go on a ride. Without a doubt. And yeah. there's two parts to that question. It's a very uh, incisive question because the, the first thing is um, that ability to feel whether things are going all right in the midst of the presentation. That's one of the first things you commented on in that question. And that comes from the fact that you are so familiar with your material and your actual talk that you could actually have awareness beyond the actual pacing of the things you need to say and what's the next slide is. If you have to worry about those things, there's no room left in your mind to get a, a real uh, feel for what the audience is, is doing right now. And if, and if you've gone too quick and you are, are so savvy with your material, you don't have to think about it, then you could put your full awareness in an attempt to understand where the audience is and empathize with them and potentially go over things in more detail, uh, cut out some of the things uh, later on in your talk so you could ask some, you know, have some question and answer time. And people that are just not prepared enough will never have enough brain space to be able to be aware of that. They're too concerned with what do I say next? Okay. So the second thing is, is really making your presentation a story and a story needs an introduction. You can't just thrust people into a morass of information and it needs uh, touchstones along the way to tell people where they are and what's coming next and, and wrap up one idea before you start the next and then introduce that next idea. And then it does need a conclusion. It does need the denouement. It needs, it needs something that leaves the audience with a transition between what should have been a, emotional and um, cognitively activating experience and bring them back to the real world and leave them with some ideas of where they should go now. And if you're not putting those things in, if you're ending your presentation with, that's all I got, do you have any questions? <laughs> um, then, right. then you've missed the boat. Because again, I mentioned it earlier, yeah. there's no point in you getting up there unless you're attempting to inspire or you're attempting to convince people of an argument. And if you don't put those introductions, those transitions, those conclusions in there, uh, both of those things will fail. What do you feel like is the hammer? What is the right thing to, you know, uh, you, you're right. You don't want to say, oh yeah, that's my last slide. Thanks for coming. Uh, don't forget to sign up for your, you know, attendance or whatever. What's the hammer? What is the way you put it down where people say, you know, that was perfect. Is it a call to action? Is it a, is it a challenge? Is it, uh, is it an emotive story or do you just sort of keep a whole holster of things and you kind of pull out the one that you think you're going to need based on what you're sensing from your, from your learners? Well, okay. So it, it is definitely a, uh, an arsenal and you choose your weapon based on, uh, the individual talk. But, uh, if you haven't prepared your ending, so you can't really say fully it's based on what the audience is doing. You mm. should have prepared that ahead of time. Because uh, it takes work. You know, basically, if you really get it down to a science, it's probably somewhere like 50% of your time is the meat of the talk and the other 50% is your introduction, conclusion, and transitions. And really, so that's how much work it's supposed to take. So if you're doing that off the cuff, you're kind of hosed. But you will pick based on the talk. And it could be any of those things. Um, one of my favorite talks to give is uh, I compare uh, putting a breathing tube down a 
uh, down a patient's throat, which we do commonly in medicine, um, to essentially uh, carrying a murder weapon. Because if you do it right, you save a life. If you do it wrong, you could be the source of killing this patient. And I start my talk off that way. I go into a whole riff on James Bond and 007, and you're essentially being given a license to kill every time you pick up a laryngoscope. And I close the talk the same way, and I just beg these people. I tell them, the patient's life is in your hands. Please don't let the laryngoscope be a murder weapon. And so there, there's some you know, rhetoric to that, you know, opening and closing with the same thing. But it leaves people with the key point of the lecture, which is this stuff's important. You got to learn it because the patient's life is in your hands. And if you do it wrong, you could actually wind up making them worse and and killing a patient. Uh, That leaves people with the right message for that talk. That's one of the interesting things about medical education. That's one of the wonderful things about medicine is we can always kind of circle back to what effect is this intervention, this conversation going to have on the downstream entity, a human being who is waiting for you to help them. It sometimes sounds a little bit corny, but whether it's corny or not, and I personally don't think it does, there's nowhere else where that weight is kind of hanging in the balance. And I think it's important that people are reminded of that. You know, you don't want to beat them over the head with it, but like you do with your talks, this is serious business. And you, you need to optimize your skills and, you know, the Scott Weingarts of the world are going to help us do that. But there, there is, there is a huge consequence, good or bad down way downstream when you walk out of the lecture hall. Oh, I mean, you, you put your finger on it. It's crazy to me. We have due to the nature of our profession built in drama. Yeah. any talk you give yeah. and people just waste that and of course you can't veer over to bathos you know you can't be uh, make it into a, a sob story you have to do it right but the drama is there it's it's uh, this accessible pool of built-in verb for any talk you give and people just ignore that and they just talk rote study regurgitation yeah. and never bring it back to the one thing we're all here for which is taking care of other human beings just as you've said mark so one of the things that you're doing, though, with all of this, your scale, you are making medical education scalable. And, you know, you look through the comments on your site and you look through the comments on the podcast and a lot of them are, hey, Scott, thank you for teaching me about this. It's changed my technique. I'm doing a better job. We also need to be improving how we teach, how we learn, how we educate. Are people also reaching out to you to say, hey, you know, can you give me some feedback on my talk? Can you give me some feedback on the way I round with residents? Can you give me some feedback so that we can continue to scale up the power of, of, you know, that teacher learner relationship? So it's funny because I've tried to really just find my niche and my niche is I take care of incredibly sick patients beyond what any emergency physician does because that job's built in taking care of sick patients. But I take care of a subset of that and I talk about my practice in taking care of those patients. Now, all the other things you mentioned, you know, how to improve rounding, how to, uh, you know, really maximize the power of talks. I might dabble in that stuff because I have opinions. I try to leave it off MCRIT for the most part and just refer people to, a, to, to refer people who have made that their niche. And I really just send learners to those folks. The nice thing about our community right now is I could – Anything you ask about medical education or medicine, I have someone who I know personally is wonderful at that area. And I just try to go with whoever is going to be the maximal source of information. And that's what's so, and that's what I'm saying the scalability of medical education. And you are out on the sharp edge of, 
a really interesting shift in how we learn and how we talk and how we educate. It's not just medicine. It's every specialty. It's every profession. But so now you're out on that sharp edge. You've got a really popular podcast. You speak all the time. You're obviously still in busy clinical practice, which of course is essential to maintain that credibility. Where do we go now? We're going to obviously continue to push the envelope. We want to continue to improve these processes. When you think about how you're, you're going to now leverage the stuff that you're doing, the, the, the trust that you've built with this huge audience, where do you want to take it? Uh, if things stayed static, I would be perfectly content with that. I don't, the, the actual volume continues to grow, but I don't need to expand into other areas. I'm sure there'll be new ways of getting things across. I don't think they're going to be uh, a, a huge change in the way we're doing things. Podcasting it is still in its nascent stages, and that yes. technology, it, it's it's phenomenal. I, I think it's still untapped, and we'll we'll continue to get better and better on how to do that. But we're almost in a reconsolidation phase in the world of uh, medical podcasting and blogs because there's finally been enough of a groundswell that the traditional academics are uh, they're they're feeling threatened and they're fighting back. So I think the next phase, the next three to five years will simply be hunkering down and defending ourselves hmm. against a set of institutions that, that are scared of the new and, and justifiably so in some cases. So really what will happen is I think a real, um, piecing out of exactly what we're here for in this new phase of medical education and the best ways to uh, interact with the existing institutions. I, I, that's interesting. I want to build on that though. And, and the place that I push you a little bit is I think that this is part of a much larger demand of people wanting to learn differently. I mean, you look at things, you look at Ted talks, you look at, you know, the, the most popular play on Broadway, you look at Hamilton People love these things because they're learning from them and they're learning in a different way than they ever expected they ever thought possible. And I think what you've done with your podcast, what people have done, you know, with writing a play like Hamilton about a, a you know, a figure of American history who's, who's many centuries old, th th that's a patient. They came in sick. They came in, you know, shocky. They came in altered. We had to resuscitate him. We had to put lines in. We had to give antibiotics. We had to, you know, connect with the family and, and, you know, make a conversation around goals of care. Now we've got them resuscitated. I think that reconsolidation that you're talking about, that's just us coming back to round on them again and say, all right, now we got to move them forward. Now we got to start getting them up out of bed. Now we've got to start thinking about rehabilitation. I, I think that what you're doing, I, I, I may be naive about this, but I do think it's part of a larger movement where interested people, are circling back and saying, I want to learn, but I don't want to learn the way that I did in school. I don't want to learn the way I did in my professional life. I want to learn in a way that engages me, that makes me feel good, that I can take out with me, and that excites me. And that's, I think, where there's a germ of real opportunity. You see, now you, you've put some perfect examples up there to have this discussion. And let's leave Hamilton out of it because it is just perfect in every form. I saw it last night. If people have saw it, it last should. night. Oh we my did. goodness. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Let, let's talk about Ted talks. Okay. Ted talks are a wonderful example. They do inspire and you have some brilliant people discussing their work, but their work is distilled into a sound bite 
of its real complexity and nuance. And you could get Malcolm Gladwell up there and go even a step further and not even talk about his own work, but talk about a soundbiteification of other people's work in a way that is very entertaining and makes you think. But unless people take the step to go and read the base research it came from, they're going to have a very superficial and I think in some ways misinformed vision of the truth of the evidence behind the things he and others in the TED Talk world say. That's fair. That is fair. I don't think, though, that it changes, at least to me, that idea that we have a a huge audience base, a huge customer base saying, I want to learn. I just don't want to learn the way I did before. Um, I still have a thirst for knowledge. I still have a thirst to get better. Um, I, I still have an innate intellectual curiosity, but give me it in a way that is more fun, quite honestly, that if I'm going to do this on my recreational time, if I'm going to do it when I'm on a jog or I'm going to do it when I'm driving, let's make it fun. Let's make it spirited. So it is something that it's not like when I was studying and it sucked, it's, it's, it's engaging and exciting. And I think that you are uniquely positioned to continue to leverage that. Well, I appreciate that, but I'll, I'll, I'll just, uh, make the point again in a way I, because I just, this is such an issue that I wrestle with. Um, those people are not learning. Those people hmm. are inspired. Those people do feel good because they've, they've gotten something interesting to think about and mull over. Yeah. But if they want to learn, learning is hard. If learning feels easy, if learning feels enjoyable, if learning it's, it seems like, wow, this is a new trick to be able to master things in a much more, uh, in a much easier way than it's false hope. Learning is hard. If you want to put things in your brain in the way they're supposed to be put in, that is hard. Being inspired, being made to think, well, that is something these do wonderfully. That's something I hope my podcast does. But if people think they're listening to 20 minutes and they've learned everything they need to know about one of the topics I've talked about, they are severely diluted. That is a really interesting point. That's a, that's a point very well taken. You're right that it is, it's a combination of that entertainment, that inspiration, but it's not that ingrained learning. It's not that chapter from the chosen where the kid really gets down and dirty with the material and, you know, interprets it every which way. That's, that's fair. Um, that being said, Maybe we can still just capture that curiosity um, and continue to to move it forward. And I, you know, you look at the stuff that you have on your site. People are leveraging it. They are listening to the twenty minute podcast and thinking, "All right, let me step back." And how am I doing my central lines? Uh, here's a guy who does dozens of these a week. Maybe there's something in here for me. I'm going to tinker with my technique a little bit. That's fair and that's important. And that's the that's the grain that I think we really want to continue to try to capture. Uh, yes, and and I think you've put your finger on something else that's very good. Um, technique mm. is a very good thing to get across in the podcast world. Mm-hmm. And uh, when my favorite podcasts, they're all about technique because technique is that that distillation and imparting of tacit knowledge. Uh, I love to hear about anyone discussing anyone at an expert level discussing how they do things. And now that's different than what they know. The latter is much more difficult, but technique is perfect. I could tell you the things not to do in five minutes that may save you a hundred central lines to have figured it out yourself if you ever, um, you know, got all of them. And that's because 
I do a lot. And I had mentors who did the same thing for me and distilled down their knowledge. That's uh, a force multiplier. So you put your finger on something very good for podcasts, which is how to do things. Do you think then part of this circling back of this big audience that you've developed and many others have developed, that there's something around them feeling like they're not going to be humbled or or humiliated by approaching with this question, you know, I think I need to do something different with this needle, or I don't know that I'm doing the right thing with this wire. Do you mind helping me? Medicine doesn't always doesn't always ingrain that. You know, sometimes when you would approach someone with that, you get whacked over the head. That's another thing that I think you are doing, you are leveraging, lots of other people are doing as well, where it's, hey, bring your question. Let's talk about it. If you have a question about what to do with a, you know, when you're putting in a when you're putting in a big cordis, let's talk about it. That's complicated and it's risky and it's dangerous. And you're doing it to a human being. So let's make sure that we're the best at it that we can be. Uh, yes, absolutely. And it's a safe space. It's a yeah. it's a way of asking that's not going to make you have any, you know, uh, you're not going to be branded with uh, why is this person asking this three years into their training and they should have figured this out by now. But But nowhere else but medicine would we just thrust people into some of the most important uh, interactions in any job. You know, people's lives are on the line with so little. Uh, training and and <laughs> yeah. and regimented ways of of doing things. I mean, this it would be laughable if anything in the military was done the way medicine does. And, right. But that's the system we're working with here. Yeah, no, that's very true. You're going to be one of those people that continues to change this paradigm, even if you want homeostasis, even if you want it to just stay as it is right now, Scott. It's not going to. Um, you have definitely unroofed something very exciting, very volatile. Uh, and very, very powerful. And it's going to probably just drive all of us in different ways, but it, it's, it's very compelling. Um, the work that you're doing is, is tremendous. Uh, it's, and wh- where do we find you? You tell us where to find you because people are going to listen to this and they're going to seek you out, I think, for a host of different reasons. So the blog and podcast can be found at mcrick.org. That's Edward Mary Charles Robert Indigo Thomas.org. Fantastic. I, I recommend it to everybody, whether you're in medicine or not, because again, the way these things are constructed, it taps into this idea of a shared, safe learning space, how to optimize knowledge, how to scale out knowledge, uh, and how to satisfy a sense of curiosity. So, Scott, this was tremendous. This was a really, really interesting conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a, probably a busy afternoon ahead, uh, but again, this was wonderful, and thank you. Mark, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. You made me think, and uh, that's always valuable. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.